Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Anshaw.net. What Ukrainian refugees will need in our schools. Over the last few weeks, it's been harrowing to see the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sense of helplessness we almost feel watching people try to reach borders to find safe refuge in other countries. It's expected that over 100,000 Ukrainian citizens will come to Ireland in the short term, and it's predicted that over 30,000 of them will be school-going children. It goes without saying that Irish schools will do whatever they can to enrol these children and make them feel as welcome as they possibly can, because that's what we do, isn't it? But realistically, we can't do this without extra supports from the Department of Education and its stakeholders. So what will schools need to ensure that these victims of a terrible war don't fall victim to the terrible supports we tend to offer children in our own education system. Hello, hello, you are more than welcome to this special episode of If I Were the Minister for Education from Onshad.net, where for the next little while I'll be discussing what I believe Ukrainian refugees will need in our schools. Uh, This may be the first time you've listened to this podcast. Uh, In normal circumstances, what I do in this podcast is I pick an element of the primary school education system, and it is a primary school education podcast, and I say what I would do if I were the Minister for Education. There's nothing I can really say to add anything useful to the discussion on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm going to get straight to the point of this podcast, which I hope will be useful to schools who are teaching children about this awful war, or schools that have Ukrainian children enrolling. But it's also aimed at the stakeholders and policymakers who also have to step up to the plate. I was listening to Norma Foley, the Minister for Education, going on about how flexible our schools are when she was talking about Ukrainian children coming to our schools and how we do have capacity to meet these children into our schools. But the reality is that these children will generally have little to no English, never mind Irish, and they're likely to be suffering trauma. A percentage of these children will come with additional needs, and we also can't forget another elephant in the room in the Irish education system. Yes, many of them are not going to be Catholic. In fact, most of them aren't going to be Catholic. I'll come back to that in a bit. However, before we talk about Ukrainian children coming to our schools, it's probably not a bad idea to talk about how we talk to children about the war in general. Educate Together, uh, as one would expect, were quick off the mark to share a list of resources to help schools teach about world conflicts on their website. And what I'm going to be doing is I will be sharing links, the links that I've, uh, I'm mentioning on the podcast uh, summary. So if you're looking for these links, just have a look at the summary of this podcast episode and they'll all be there for you. And it's about talking about conflict with young children. 
and they made three very, very useful points before listing resources, which are worth keeping in mind. And before I mention those three useful points, by the way, you know, you may wonder, and for those of you who aren't in the education, uh, aren't familiar with the education system, and for many of you that are in the education system, but aren't aware of what Educate Together do, um, while you're possibly teaching faith formation in religious schools, Educate Together uh, have a curriculum, their own uh, ethical education program called Learn Together. And... Uh, Lots of, there's, well, many people are aware that we teach about and from other religions. We also have other strands to our curriculum, one about the environment, uh, where we talk about sustainability and uh, climate crisis, all this kind of stuff. Um, we also talk about morality and things like that as well. But we also uh, have something around equality and justice. And this is where a lot of this would have come from, I guess. Where, and this is why Educate Together, I suppose, we're quick off the mark with this, uh, because it is part of our curriculum when talking about equality, justice and things like that. The three points that they made, and it's a, uh, basically, and there are a few points to keep in mind. The first, and these, I'll just read them as they are. One, conflict exists in many parts of the world. And when conflict is close to our everyday lives, it can be traumatic and scary, especially for children. Number two, where such conflict is personal for children, it's best to acknowledge this difficulty and your support for that child. However, it is best to keep this general rather than specific. Ignoring it isn't an option for child-centred schools. Now, Educate Together, as you know, are child-centred schools by, by their definition. But I think everybody acknowledges that all schools these days uh, would consider themselves child-centred in, in, many, in many ways. And uh, I think for the purposes of this um, particular podcast episode, uh, I would imagine that all schools would consider themselves child-centred. Number three, it is of vital importance that the classroom remains a safe, stable and nurturing environment for all children and especially during difficult periods. So um, these uh, are three points to keep in mind. Now, they're quite general points, obviously. And if they were in isolation, they may not be particularly useful, but just in fairness, they, they need to be said. And while most people have common sense, it can be very easy to get this wrong. Um, you know, I mean, and we, we have seen um, examples of this already um, where there are a number of schools, for example, flying the Ukrainian flag outside their school. Um, and in some ways, now, while this, while it might be a debatable whether it's wrong or not, um, a flag can be a very political statement. And by flying a flag uh, of one particular nation, in this case, maybe U- Ukraine, you, you can open yourself up to situations of possibly you could call it whataboutery, but why would you not fly a Palestinian flag or a Yemeni flag or so on? Um, and why this flag? What if you have, um, you know, and, and, and there's lots of problems can arise as a result that you're not intending to have, but they can arise as a result. So in some ways, while it's absolutely right to acknowledge uh, the, that there is terrible things happening to Ukrainian children um, uh, and, and so on. Flying a flag may be seen as a political uh, endeavour and you need to be careful of these kind of things. But as well as that, you can also get the tone wrong very easily um, by, you know, maybe, um, you know, not being sensitive and not, uh, and not being supportive, particularly even if you're trying to be. Um, I think if you are a regular listener to this podcast, um, you, might have, you might remember me talking about my own experience 
experience in junior infants. Um, I, uh, when I was being taught about the Holocaust um, back uh, during the Second World War and uh, how we were told about all the Jewish people that were killed by uh, the Nazis. And uh, I spent months uh, obsessing over this with my mom every time we walked by a graveyard I would shout at the top of my voice is that where the Nazis buried all the Jews or killed all the Jews you know that kind of stuff now you know I obviously I, I you know it's just it's just to be be wary of how we speak to children it's very difficult and to be honest with you this is why I'm making this podcast because in some ways I don't really have the answers but we I, I do I, what I am going to be doing is calling out for answers. But let's let's stick to the point where we're at at the moment. The resources that Educate Together have offered are extremely useful. And they range from UNICEF's lesson plans on refugees, which is very which is obviously very appropriate, to media literacy, to teaching controversial issues. Because no matter what people say, this, uh, and I mean, it would might not seem very controversial to you, this situation, that we should be doing everything we can to defend the Ukrainian people and so on. War is always controversial. And um, I think I gave you an example of why flying a Ukrainian flag, for example, could be considered controversial. It's very important to teach about controversial issues and there's a way of doing it. And teaching controversial issues is something that Educate Together schools probably have a little bit more experience than traditional schools because in traditional, let's say, religious schools, the truth is often based in like God's teaching, let's say, or something like that, or God's, a particular God's teaching. Whereas in some cases, in many cases in Educate Together schools, you do have a little bit of, uh, you do have to be mindful that some issues can be controversial, whether that uh, uh, whether that's uh, religious views, whether that's LGBT plus views and all sorts of things like that. They, th- where people might disagree fundamentally on an issue would be a controversial issue or where there might be problems in that. And that's a very basic definition. But just we need to be aware of these things. And I suppose my first piece of advice to anyone really covering this is just be aware that war is a controversial issue and we need to have training. Well, we need to certainly know what we're doing. Um, Or certainly if we don't know what we're doing, we need to be conscious that we don't know what we're doing and try and find find out ways uh, so we can be better equipped to know what we're doing. I don't say, uh, by the way, when I when I mentioned the uh, religious schools, I'm not saying that's a criticism. It just is what it is, uh, and I'm not. I will leave my commentary on religion on schools for other episodes of this podcast, obviously. But suffice to say, it's not only a very interesting method of teaching the controversial, like controversial issues. is not. It is an interesting method of teaching. But if I'm being honest, even in an educate together school, many teachers will try and avoid it. No, it is a very difficult thing to teach. Anyway, after this. There's a list of picture books, which are good, particularly uh, for younger children and older children, and they're good for discussing controversial issues such as conflict, colonization, refugees, and things like that. And then there follows, uh, then there follows another list about migration and immigration, which may be useful too, because obviously we've got migration happening um, at the moment. So that's essentially what Educate Together provided. As you might expect as well, newspapers and media around the world carried articles uh, all the time trying to explain the invasion to children and the Irish media were no different. Um, I'm again going to link an article to the Irish Times where Dr Mary O'Kane advises uh, uh, to parents answer questions as honestly as you can without giving them too many details. Don't avoid questions but answer them in an age-appropriate way. For example, 
There is a war far away in Ukraine. People are fighting with each other. We are not in any danger here, but we are worried about the people in Ukraine. That might be an age-appropriate way to answer the question. And it's a really good answer in a way because you're not avoiding the question, but you're also being supportive. One final suggestion that I'll give you is actually from an American website called The Conversation. And again, I have it linked here in the, in the uh, summary. It gives similar tips to Educate Together and to Dr. Mary O'Kane just above, and it's well worth a look. Um, I'm going to paste, as I said, I'm going to paste the links on the, the podcast page. So let's, that's a, a bit of support there, really, um, that might help you out just before maybe um, our, uh, we, we have a number of Ukrainian families moving over to, our, uh, to Ireland and, and joining us in schools that would prepare our children for um, talking about war and conflict and the controversial uh, issues surrounding that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to move on a little bit to what we can expect over the next few weeks. Um, and this is, um, this is, I think, particularly important because this is where we introduce the political spectrum to our arguments. And this is where I will be a little bit critical of um, our Minister for Education. I'll be quite critical, uh, potentially, of some of the stakeholders and so on. So we need to, I suppose this is sort of, let's say, the first part that I've done there was a bit of support, a bit of help. This bit well, is where I'm looking for extra support because we can't do any of the above on our own, really. <coughs> Excuse me for coughing there. Norma Tifoli, uh, the Minister for Education, tweeted last week the following. Today I spoke with the Ukrainian Education Minister, Sergei Shkart... Sorry, I, I, I'm butchering the name here. Sergei Shkarlet, who described how war has devastated Ukraine, Ukrainian education infrastructure. I assured him the Irish education community would do all we can to welcome and support Ukrainian families. Now, I don't think anyone in their right mind would argue that this is exactly what we will do. Irish schools have been welcoming refugees for a number of years, whether that was Syrian refugees more recently, or from Sudan, uh, Myanmar, or wherever. However, the difference this time, as opposed to Syria, Sudan, Myanmar, and other countries, We're expecting over 100,000 people to Ireland and there may be at least 30 to 50,000 school-going children among them. This is likely going to increase our school populations by up to 10%, which means 10% higher class sizes, 10% extra supports needed at a very bare minimum. However, on top of that, just having 10% extra people in our classrooms, there are going to be extra language needs and psychological supports needed. And I'd suggest in, in this case, there has to be an argument for Ukrainian language teachers too. Um, and I, I'll explain that a little later, because I, well, I suppose maybe now, one would hope that these families are going to return to their country in the near future. And whatever the near future means, I don't know how long this is going to last. And we might look at how that might work in an Irish context. So actually, I will. I'll talk about it a little later. Of course, our floundering, I'm calling it a floundering Department of Education because I, I just think they're hopeless, to be honest with you, as a department. Um, sir, I, I, it's been a long time since you've been able to give praise to the Department of Education. Anyway, they sent out, the senior civil servants sent out Norma Foley to rabbit, uh, basically, their plans on the media. Um, as you probably know, um, and this is why I never really go after Norma Foley on a personal basis, or Joe McHugh or anyone before them. They tend to just be the mouthpiece of senior civil servants. They don't really deviate from what they say. So when I'm talking about Norma Foley, and I'm, not, I'm not being personal towards her. She simply is a mouthpiece. It's a shame she is, but she is. And that's fair enough. 
Um, but basically, her um, plan, or the Department of Education's plan, can be summed up, I, I, I can't think of any other way to do it, but pretty much as useful as thoughts and prayers. The minister was on News Talk again, starting off with the amazingly off-the-wall statement. And this, I'll just quote, I just want to say, in the first instance, there are many students from Ukraine already in our school environment. I mean, as if that was relevant in any way. You know, just, it's like the Ukrainian, is, like the, it's like, as if being from Ukraine would be the problem. You know, we're dealing with Ukrainians already. You know, it shouldn't be an issue. I mean, I hope that's not what she meant. But that's what it sounds like to me. But on top of that bizarre opening gambit, she also made lots of claims that are just blatantly untrue. For example, I'm going to go through three examples. One, we are very clear at this point where there is absolute capacity in our system and indeed equally clear where there isn't capacity in other areas around the country. Now, I can guarantee you that they have absolutely no idea about capacity in Irish schools. And I can guarantee you that when a push comes to shove, they're going to be really, really stuck on this one because they have no idea how many, ch uh, how many children are divided up into the very various classes of schools. We don't, when we uh, supply the data to the Department of Education, while we do uh, say how many um, children in each class, I, it would be take a huge amount of effort to get this information. And what I can also guarantee you is they, even though they do actually have the answers that are very difficult to find through this pod system, what they're going to do is they're going to rely on the goodwill of schools that what they're going to do is they're probably going to send a form out to our schools to ask them, how many places do you have in each class? And then there'll be hopes and prayers that schools will reply to the message. And ultimately, there isn't really a reasonable mechanism whatsoever that they know what to do or how they'll go about it. So to say that we have all this capacity is great, but the reality is the capacity, what do they mean by capacity? For example, I'll give you an example because I mean, I'm probably not being very, very clear here. There's, let's say, let's pick an example of a big, a big town school or a big, an urban school and a rural school. Now an urban school, when they're full, that usually means that there's 28, 29, maybe 30, well, there's really, it should be 25 children in a classroom because you're only supposed to have 25 children in a classroom. And it's fairly straightforward how that works. So if you have 25, 26 children in, a class, in each classroom, you are at capacity. But let's take a rural school. They have a much more complicated way of, uh, uh, for describing capacity. They might have a two-teacher school where you've got junior infants to, uh, junior infants to let's say, um, I don't know, second class, and then third class to sixth class. And they kind of serve a very small area of a village. There might be six children in the, in the whole school. But the reason why there's only six children in the whole school is because there may only be six children within about three to five kilometers of the school. Now, it's very unlikely we're going to be moving Ukrainian children into the middle of nowhere um, when, they, when they come to Ireland. So the capacity really is not, you know, isn't as easy as one thinks because most of the capacity in Ireland is in rural areas where they have tiny populations, no housing uh, available for uh, for these. And why would you put, um, I suppose, the vast majority of Ukrainians coming will be coming from, Ukraine, uh, will probably be coming from urban areas because they're the areas being bombed. So, you know, maybe that, that explains it a little bit. So uh, that's the first point. The second point, uh, second thing she said was, 
We also have in place a variety of resources from our network of psychologists in terms of how to deal with war. Now, while this is technically true, it's also technically nonsense. I'll tell you what the variety of resources are from a network of psychologists in terms of how to deal with war. They released two documents, one for parents and families and one for schools. And the one for, um, the one for parents and families is a two-page document um, and it essentially goes through the same stuff I spoke about a few minutes ago in much less detail. And the one for schools um, is three pages long, two and a half pages long, and is equally light on detail. And it does have a, I mean, again, I will link it uh, to this podcast because I think it's, it's, it's handy. But, it's, but a lot of the links that are, that are within that document are very tenuously related um, to, in fact, they're not even related um, to, uh, and basically they're just to, to war, but they are related to other NEPS documents. And, you know, it gives advice to teachers. And one of them, and, like, and I'm not just, I'm, not, I'm picking this one out just because it's one of many, but for me, it's the worst of them. It includes advice of how to look after your own well-being as a teacher. And you know what the advice is? Ring the counselling service, the public service counselling service. That's how you look after your well-being uh, in com- when it comes to war. And you will possibly be allowed to get a counsellor who is absolutely not qualified in anything to do with war um, listening to you. So it's a listening service. Look, it isn't nothing, but considering the resources behind the Department of Education and NEPS, I really think they could have done a lot better. So again, the minister is over-egging what's actually available. And in fact, there isn't, you know, within those documents, you know, one might have expected, considering what she said, there isn't a single mention of NEPS offering a single service to these children. Not a single service. So they will not, there's nothing to say they will see children who are going through extreme trauma. Anyway, the third thing she said was, and we have helplines in place for our principals. Ah, the good old helpline for principals. Now you'd think after her last disaster on News Talk, she wouldn't try and pull off the same trick. But here she is again with this principal helpline, which for those of you who, can, who don't know about this, it was invented, um, this, 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 there was this phone number basically when COVID came up, where principals could ring if there was cases in their school and the Department of Education would give some sort of advice. And then during the substitute crisis, Norma Foley was on News Talk before, and she claimed that no one had rung the principal uh, hotline um, about the substitute crisis, even though the hotline was there for COVID-related um, things, nothing to do with um, substitutes or anything like that. So she's basically pulling the same trick off, saying that the principal helpline will be there for uh, people looking for resources on war. Now, I'm tempted to ring that phone number and say, by the way, I can I have some support uh, w- with regards to um, helping uh, Ukrainian children coming to our schools and how to cope with um, you know their their trauma from war, and see what they have to say. But you know, it's it's it, it, it look. I don't know. I don't know. And and this is the this is why things get so frustrating for schools and why you why you find why, a lot of people who might be listening to this wonder why schools or teachers. Um, whinge so much as uh, to, to use a word uh, and it's because of this kind of thing you're just constantly gaslit by uh, by your minister I mean imagine if you had a boss that spoke about you uh, spoke about you in such a way um, it just seems you know it just seems totally unreasonable but anyway given that uh, Norma Foley has decided to use this magical phone number for absolutely everything um, 
you know, even though the person who, by the way, the person who answers the phone, um, their only job when you ring them is to basically give you a different email address and they actually provide you with no help whatsoever. Anyway, as I listened to the nonsense spread from her lips, I realized really that the Department of Education are going to revert to another piece of advice that she had for teachers. Um, not so long ago, to be honest. And that piece of advice was, and to be perfectly honest, it's not good enough. The truth is we simply cannot absorb an extra 30,000 children into our system without extra supports from the Department of Education. And given that we have no support whatsoever yet from the Department of Education, I thought it might be a good idea to try and suggest supports that I have identified and also that others much more qualified than me have brought up over social media and so on over the last few weeks. The first support, of course, um, will be English language support. And um, the wonderful ELSTA, ELSTA, um, is a group of volunteer teachers who have over 1,000 members, all of them teachers, who support each other to provide the best English language supports possible within huge constraints that have been put in place in the last 15 years. I really admire this group a lot because essentially over the last 15 years um, English language supports have been cut to the bone and um, I, I, let, let me just talk about that for a second because before the recessions EAL was considered to be a unique support for children. In fact, for every 12 children with EAL needs, the Department of Education provided an EAL support teacher to help these children um, learn English uh, coming to Ireland. Many of these children uh, did not have English coming to uh, Ireland, and this support was obviously very useful. Um, and the Department of Education, in fairness, it provided an EAL programme of assessment and a programme for delivering education to the children, but they really fell short in terms of specialised training for teachers. In a way, it was kind of like, Look, we have the teachers here, here, here follow this, follow this programme, you should be grand. And in fairness, you know, look, I, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a fairly generous uh, service, um, 12, for every child, 12 children, you get a teacher. But when the recession came, EAL was absorbed into special education. And in my opinion, that was a very insulting move, as if speaking another language fluently is considered to be a special need. But that aside, the programme was absolutely ripped apart. Now, there's a word that I never use in this podcast, and I don't know if any of you have noticed I've never used this word in the podcast, but that word is decimated. <laughs> I, I really dislike the word decimated, and I, I really hate the way it's used, because decimated means a 10% cut to something, basically. So if there's been a 10% cut to something, I would say it's been decimated. But I don't think that's what people mean when they say, when they say the word decimated. And that's why I don't like it. I'm very pedantic. But anyway, and to be honest, if EAL was only decimated, it probably wouldn't be as bad as what happened. Um, these days, you do not automatically receive EAL support uh, if you come to a, a, a primary school, you have to appeal for it and the school has to appeal for it. So schools don't automatically receive EAL support. Every year they have to appeal to get it on the basis of their enrolments the year before, not this year, not the year they come, the children will come, but based on your numbers the year before. And you might get one EAL teacher for over 100 pupils, depending on what year the children began in the school. Now, there's been no real update to the programme and still there's been no training since this uh, scheme came out over 15 years ago. And ELSTA have even released a press release with the following. And I'm going to read it to you because I think 
I mean, it's, uh, I, I think it's important. In the last several weeks, ELSTA have received a larger number of requests from schools and teachers who are looking for support for English language teaching and how to successfully work with newly arrived students who may have experienced trauma. Now, I think we all know who we're referring to. And to be honest, it's a very polite sentence. <laughs> if I had written it, I don't think I would have been able to hold back as much. But um, given that there are going to be at least 30,000 children coming to our schools the next while, we seriously need huge supports when it comes to EAL. The government are extremely sneaky when it comes to giving resources. And um, if we divide the 30,000 children into the available schools that we have in Ireland, that's, that, that's basically an equivalent of 10 uh, children per school. And there needs to be a lot more than 10 before you get an extra teacher allocated to any school. So remembering also that allocations are also, made, are also made based on the enrollments of the previous September, it could be nearly two years before any extra EAL teacher supports would be offered to any school. Basically what I'm saying is supports are going to be needed immediately as we are already heavily under-resourced in the area of EAL, never mind special education. I think as I, what I'm saying is we need to get back for EAL to be considered a unique need for children and not lumped in with special education as, because it's disrespectful, number one, and number two, it's a totally different um, need. It's a totally different area of support. We essentially have the bare minimum and I'm being generous in that, that's needed in a best case scenario. And in most cases, we are working on an absolute deficit of needs. And we've, as we've seen from the Department of Education during COVID-19, they will try and get away with sound bites. Remember, remember, do you remember the sound bites? We're adding 200 teachers to the system, which meant nothing because it sounded good, but it had no effect whatsoever um, on the actual education system. And by relying on sound bites, such as the ones that I was just reading to you there from the News Talk interview, it's going to make no difference to the children, to the vast majority of children coming to this country. In fact, they'll, it's likely they'll receive nothing. So what's the solution? Look, even if we wanted to, we simply don't have enough teachers in the country. We saw that during COVID-19, when Norma Foley added 200, 300, 500 teachers into the system, we didn't have the teachers. We just don't have enough teachers in the country. We're still unable to fill loads of teaching posts in this country. And for me, the solution probably lies, probably, in English language schools. Now, I don't know if I like my solution because it's mixing private schooling with a public system, but I actually can't think of anything else right now. And maybe someone better than me and more qualified than me might be able to come up with some different solution. English language schools have an advantage in that many of their staff have done training in teaching English as an additional language. In fact, I think all of them have done training in an additional language, English as an additional language. And the obstacles they have going into our profession is they're generally not fully qualified teachers, so they'd be quite limited in what they can actually do in a school. But even if it is just teaching AEL for now, I think that's okay, just for now. And generally in these language schools, they have either someone who's able to speak the same language as the students or a link person who can speak the language as well as English. And I'd expect that a number of Ukrainian people coming to Ireland will be teachers. And this would be a really good opportunity to offer paid work automatically and immediately 
to these Ukrainian teachers who will be coming over. And I am aware that, uh, well, I'm, I, I'm aware insofar as the Irish Times said that something's happening in that area. It's funny when you're, in a, when you're a teacher, you actually hear news about education or you hear about what's happening from the Irish Times rather than from the Department of Education. Um, imagine that in your own job if you're not a teacher. Anyway, all of this can probably be done quite quickly. English schools were very heavily hit during COVID-19 because no one was coming to Ireland. So this might be an opportunity to help in another way. They could still carry on their normal operations because they won't uh, require, we won't require their premises as the children will be in our schools. Now, obviously, outside of English, the children coming to Ireland will, for the first time, have to face learning the Irish language. Now, to be honest, I don't know if there's much we can do about this. And um, we don't know how long these children will end up living here and whether or not we believe that Irish is a useful language or not. And that's for a whole other debate. But I guess we have no other choice but to teach the language to the children. Now, I guess if we're expecting them to say Dierwich, we can probably pay back the honour of saying Dobri Den and maybe a few other phrases. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, it's something, I suppose there's something slightly romantic about the idea of a bunch of Ukrainians returning to their homeland armed with a cupola fuckle and all that. But maybe there's another possibility, though I can't see how it would be possible in terms of numbers and the sheer spread of children around the different schools. Ukrainian children will need to keep up their studies in their own curriculum on top of that, and I'm pretty sure every single one of them would like to return to Ukraine as soon as possible, to their homes. So with this in mind, I believe there needs to be hubs of schools in different areas offering Ukrainian classes and the Ukrainian curriculum to their pupils, possibly in the evenings after school or on the weekend. Now, this isn't something completely crazy, by the way, as a concept. This isn't something that hasn't happened already in Ireland, would you believe? And many of you might know, not know this. But for example, the Polish community in Ireland have a massive network of Saturday schools around the country. And um, if it's something you didn't know about, well, now you know. So something similar for our Ukrainian uh, children would make a lot of sense. Perhaps it might be an hour or two after school, um, uh, once or twice a week, um, as so the, the, uh, where Ukrainian teachers can teach Ukrainian children. But again, obviously, we're not going to be able to supply uh, every school with that. So we look at hubs of schools, maybe in urban areas. So again, we have to look at transport. We have to look at all that sort of stuff. So just things to keep in mind. Um, I don't really have much more to offer in terms of language support, but I hope it gives a little bit of food for thought. So let's move on to something we mentioned earlier, psychological supports. Uh, to be honest, unfortunately, I don't know. I, I just simply don't see what we're going to do in Ireland about this. I know that sounds completely defeatist, but our NEPS service is so woefully under-supported and even the best supports that we have in schools are always compromises. Very, very few mainstream schools, if any, have a school psychologist like many other countries do. A big school with 400 pupils might get three or four days of support from a qualified psychologist per year. And there are hundreds of schools in Ireland that receive nothing. Now, I've long argued that we need to expand NEPS. And while I'm not saying that this situation should be the catalyst for that, but even if I was, I think we're coming from such a low base that there is simply absolutely no way to absorb potentially 30,000 children suffering from trauma and actually have this solved very quickly. 
What is going to happen, I know what's going to happen, to be honest with you. I mean, basically what's going to happen, unfortunately, is that that stupid well-being framework um, is going to be, is going to be uh, reminded schools. By the way, don't remember to follow that stupid well-being framework we came up with in 2017. You know, with that hodgepodge of nonsense um, that Jan O'Sullivan, when she was Minister for Education, launched onto schools. And basically it can be summarised, the whole booklet could be summarised in one line. Find one good adult in a school and you're grand, pretty much. That one good adult, by the way, may not be any good. And it's simply someone nice in a school. That's what our well-being document basically consists of. I mean, the nonsense in it is unbelievable. But that aside, I mean, look, I don't want to go on about it because I've gone on about it before. But when you hear, and because you will hear it, when you hear the minister going on about the well-being framework, don't buy it. Don't buy the nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. But to be honest, I can't. I, I, I don't really know where to begin to think about how to solve this issue because we have such a low base here. We don't have school psychologists, really. And what are we going to do? And the only thing I can think of, and this is just me thinking, really, because I'm, I'm no expert in this, I'm only thinking, is to round up every therapist, every psychologist, every counsellor in the country and share them among schools to provide therapies of some sort. Now, I, I don't even know if this makes any sense. I mean, there'd need to be a further layer here for screening the needs of children so they can be seen by the right person. Like, there's no point in sending a kid to a music therapist if their needs are best served by, let's say, psychiatry or something like that. Again, we'll need, we'll also need Ukrainian speakers to help with this and some reasonably trained people to screen, to do the screening. And as I'm saying this, I'm kind of seeing what a mammoth task this is going to be. But it really kind of has to be done. I mean, unless there are better options, which I, I just can't think of right now. I mean, simply relying on a teacher that's nice in every school just won't cut it. I mean, that nice teacher has no qualifications for this type of work. And heck, they aren't even qualified to do the work they're probably trying to do in their current, in the, in the first place at the moment. They're not qualified in what they're trying to do for well-being. They just happen to be nice and just being nice isn't good enough now, and it's irresponsible now, and it's even more irresponsible, equally not good enough for the future. If we have 30,000 children coming to Ireland, a rough guess of 10 to 15% of them will have additional education needs as well. So let's move on to this. Um, if, we're, if this, that's if we have the same demographics as Ireland, which I can't see why we wouldn't. So that's going to be a bare minimum of 2,500 children presenting with learning needs and potentially care needs. Now, the NCSE has spent the last decade, as we know, making scathing cuts to supports for children with additional needs. And over 90% of schools, and just to justify that, by the way, because some people say, ah, oh, it's easy to say that. Sure, look, haven't they, aren't they putting 2 billion euro into the, into season? 25% of all costs, blah, 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 blah. All nonsense. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. The thing, and to prove it, really, I suppose, is that we, the National Principles Forum, for example, surveyed over a thousand principals to ask them about this. And over 90% of them said they do not have the same level of support. They have less supports than they had 10 years ago. So if we're adding another 10% of children to our caseloads, you don't need to tell, you don't need me to tell you what's going to happen. And I also don't think you need me to tell you what needs to happen in order to counteract this. What we need at a bare minimum is an increase of 10% of set allocation immediately. And in reality, we need double that, double at least. 
We also need at least a 10% increase in SNA allocations, but in reality, again, we need much more than that. SNA supports in schools have again been more than decimated. Again, I'm using, they, they, I'm not using the word decimated. They've been more than decimated with very few children. I mean, very, very few children receiving close to what they need. Special classes are also going to need to be increased and so on and so forth. So there's all that that needs to be done. This is a special class for autism, uh, behavioural needs and so on. And because the NCSE has responsibility for all of this, you can be almost certain that nothing is going to happen more than an acknowledgement that it will be challenging for schools. That's as good as it will get. And everyone's going to get cross with Josepha Madigan instead of the NCSE. Now, I'm not defending Josepha Madigan. She's just there as a buffer, whether she knows it or not. But the NCSE are the agency that are absolutely 100% responsible for the mess that special education needs are on. And now that they're changing their CEO, so their current CEO is retiring, and they've got some guy, and I'm calling him some guy, because his only qualification is he was the head of the ETB in Cavan Monaghan for a while, which has nothing to do with special educational needs. This is this merry-go-round round of people in the in the public sector moving to places where they're absolutely not qualified in and I've look I, to be honest maybe he is very qualified but there's no evidence of it I've gone googling and found searching to find anything about him the only thing I know about him is he was the CEO of the Cavan Monhans ETB which doesn't really fill me with a huge amount of um, optimism to be honest with you and to be honest with you what I think is this is just slotting in a bureaucrat um, and to continue to destroy the education for our most vulnerable pupils and sorry if that sounds harsh nothing personal to this gentleman I'm sure he's a lovely man but what's he doing in this job what qualifications? What is he? Got? I, I just don't get it. I'm sure it's just, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And the only conclusion I can have is that this, the NCSE, is no longer interested in, in, in supporting children with additional needs. They have become a HSE. It's all about position, positions and prestige. Anyway, what can I say about special education needs that hasn't been said before, except that we're going to have a 10% increase in need and we'll need to have at least a 10% additional, um, additional support very, very quickly. I suppose we have to mention that elephant in the room I mentioned before, and that's religion. And it wouldn't be one of my podcasts, I guess, if, if I didn't mention religion, because it is something I talk about a lot. But many people listening to this might not have given it a second's thought, you see. And... Why would they? You know, why would why would that even be on your radar? Um, you know, sure, I can't convince most of you <laughs> that saying prayers and going to churches, singing songs about how wonderful Jesus is, is religious at all. Most of you don't think that's being religious. But for those of you that realize that it's totally inappropriate, let's say, for example, to ask a Muslim kid to be one of the three wise men in the nativity because they're wearing a hijab, then you might be interested in hearing about the religious views of Ukrainian children. I wonder how many of you checked this before you had a Ukrainian family come to your school. Well, you might be pleased to hear that 70% of Ukrainians identify as some form of Christian. But unfortunately, it's not the Christian that you might be. It's Orthodox. Mainly, about 60-odd percent of Ukrainians are Eastern Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox, which you'll also be pleased to know is, I suppose you'll have to be pleased, I suppose <laughs> you'll be pleased to know that it's not that far removed from Catholicism. And it probably sits somewhere in the middle between Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, however, there are 30% of Ukrainians that will be coming here who are mainly of no faith. And rather than assuming 
Can I just urge you as schools, because this isn't about resources now. This is just about respect, basic respect for people. Because I know you have some of you have absolutely no respect for the Irish children in your schools that don't have a religion. Uh, and I'm sorry to be harsh when I'm saying that. But these are children that are coming from traumatic situations who have more to be dealing with than have, a, a, than, than have to be sitting into a classroom where they're further isolated because of their, uh, because of their family's uh, religious views or lack of them. Can you, can I urge you to check with their families and respect their wishes, respect their faith or their lack of faith, and don't assume that they're happy to be blessing themselves. Religion might be the only thing that's, and in fairness, they may be very religious. Religious might be the only thing that's got them through their journey to Ireland, and I absolutely respect them. And as much as I wouldn't mock them for thanking their God for bringing them to Ireland safely, I would expect that we wouldn't disrespect them by making them say prayers inappropriately. Do you understand what I mean when I'm saying that? And as much as religion may not matter to you, even if you do tick the box to say that you're Catholic, even if you are working in a religious school, don't assume that they feel the same way as you do about your religious views. Just because Ireland has this sort of odd relationship with the Catholic Church insofar as you don't, that you say you're Catholic but don't actually do anything Catholic, doesn't mean that other people say that they're Eastern Orthodox and don't do anything to be Eastern Orthodox. They may take the religion much more seriously than you and sometimes they may not they may not have a religion at all and you have to equally respect that. Effectively they may be much more religious than you or much less religious than you. And in other words, respect is important whatever your beliefs and whatever theirs. I'm sure I've left a lot out of this podcast, but I do hope it's been useful. As schools, I'm sure you'll agree that we'll do whatever it takes to make our new families welcome in our schools, but we can't do that without support. As schools, we 100% rely on funding and resources from the Department of Education and its stakeholders. Most of what we'll need will need to come from the NCSE and NEPS, but also from the Department of Education in terms of EAL support. We're, all, we're already cut to the bone in these areas since the recession and nothing really ever came back in terms of those supports. We've, we're still on recession, uh, basically recessionary um, cuts in the, in, when it comes to special education needs and English language supports. In fact, if anything, we've probably been, had further cuts um, by stealth and otherwise. A blanket 10% increase in resources would be a bare minimum we'd need with extra support for EAL, for example, but also for other areas. If we really want to help these families, we need to do it properly. So that is it for me for this uh, episode. Um, I hope it was of use uh, to you. Just a a few thoughts on um, what we might be able to do to support these families moving to our country um, and, you know, obviously it goes without saying that all our, our thoughts are with uh, the people of Ukraine and we will do absolutely, as a school community, we will do whatever it takes, no matter what it takes, to look after these families who are in unimaginable, um, unimaginably difficult uh, circumstances through no fault of their own. Um, I guess there is, as I said, I there isn't really much more to say. I suppose please take what I've said as, um, in a way, almost with a pinch of salt, because I'm not an expert in this area. I'm way beyond my expertise in this. I suppose in all the helplessness, I guess, I mean, well, I 
can't imagine too many people listen to this podcast. I hope it gives a sort of perspective of the reality on the ground in our Irish education system at primary level so that maybe your expectations aren't too high about what the Department of Education are really going to be able to do. But also, you know, some of my own ideas about what could happen or should happen. But I'm sure, as I said, I'm not an expert, so I've probably left a huge amount out and I've probably made a few mistakes along the way when I've said things. So, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you are listening to this and you hear something I've said to say, no, 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 that's that's not true. So please respond and I absolutely will correct anything I've said, particularly for such a sensitive um, episode such as this. Um, I know how sensitive it can be, but also I know that, um, you know, I, I recognize in this case that I'm way out of my depth in terms of my knowledge in the area. So really, uh, with, there's nothing really further to say on the matter from my point of view. As Irish people, we will do whatever it takes to help our Ukrainian uh, brothers and sisters um, in this time. And uh, we hope, uh, of course, we all hope that this terrible war will end very, very soon. In the meantime, we'll do whatever it takes to look after um, our new families and we'll do that with the Cave Mila Falcha we always give. Thanks very much for listening. All the very best. Bye bye.